evening, our scripture reading is coming from Jeremiah chapter 10. We'll be reading Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. Jeremiah 10, verses 1 through 16. Listen to God's word now. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the ways of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammers and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth. And from under the heavens, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. For he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Amen. Let's pray as we come to God's word together now. We pray, Lord, that you would... Show us what is true. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would shine that light, the light of your truth, into our hearts and into our minds and into our lives. We need your work to open our eyes and to soften our hearts and to prepare us to receive your word and be changed. Lord, we pray that you would do this amazing work because this is something that you have planned from all eternity to work in us and to change us, even tonight, to bring us more and more to look like Jesus Christ, our elder brother and our Savior. We thank you and we pray that you would do this work now for your glory. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our sermon this evening is coming from 1 Samuel chapter 5. That's 1 Samuel chapter 5. <clears throat> Remember where we are in the book of Samuel. We've seen the God calling Samuel 
And then last week, we saw Israel walking away from God. We saw them take the Ark of the Covenant into battle, and we saw God judge them, and the people mourn that the glory of God, the presence of God, has left his people. That brings us this evening up to 1 Samuel chapter 5. Let's read these words together. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. I ask a question here as we begin. Who is missing in this chapter? Who is missing in 1 Samuel 5? We see God and we see Dagon. We very clearly see the Philistines, but there's no Israel at all. That might be surprising given that this book, 1 Samuel, is written for God's people. But the absence of Israel is part of God's message to his people. In 1 Samuel 5 and also in the next chapter, 1 Samuel 6, God shows his people his true character and nature. He is the living God who will defend his honor and show his glory all by himself. He does not need Israel. Israel needs him. That leads us to our main idea, 1 Samuel 5. God reveals his true glory to his enemies and to his people. God reveals his true glory to his enemies and to his people. So look at that together this evening. We'll see two points. We'll see God judges false gods in verses 1 through 5, and secondly, we'll see that God judges his enemies in verses 6 through 12. So let's begin by looking at God judging false gods, verses 1 through 5. The Philistines have just 
scored one of the greatest victories in the history of their invasions into Israel. They've actually managed to take the ark of God, and they bring that ark back to Ashdod, and they put it in their temple to Dagon. The ark is now on display, and the ark is meant to display the power of Dagon. What they're trying to say is that Dagon, the Philistines' god, has finally completely defeated the god of Israel. But they will soon find out God is not defeated. No, God soon displays his own power. Verse 3, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Dagon is in a position of worship. He is lying face downward in God's presence. Notice how soon God shows his power. It only takes one night before Dagon loses. But the Philistines don't want to understand how powerful God is and how powerless their idol actually is. You can see the amazing irony in verse 3. Dagon is on the floor, so they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. Here is the God who supposedly defeated the God of Israel. And he's not even able to stand up by himself. Dagon's worshipers have to restore him to this place. And then God acts to send an even clearer message. Verse 4, When they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and the hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Not only is Dagon face downward again in a position of worship before the true Lord, he is now beyond repair. His head and his hands have been broken off. But verse 5 shows us the depth of unbelief that is in the heart of the Philistines. Because at the time of the writing of 1 Samuel, Many years after these events, everyone who enters Dagon's temple stepped over the threshold where his hands and head had rested. The men of Ashdod had actually turned this event into a ceremony or a rule instead of using it to remind them of the greatness of God. They now didn't step on the threshold because God had thrown their idol down on it. And yet they continued in their blind unbelief. You can see the power and the folly of idol worship as we look at the Philistines. In the Bible, God repeatedly condemns idol worship. We read from Jeremiah 10 earlier. Look at Isaiah 44 as another example. Or it's in the Psalms as well, Psalm 96.5 or many other places. God condemns idol worship. But the way he condemns it is not just showing that it's wrong. He actually shows that it is foolish. Psalm 115, the idols have mouths, but they do not speak, eyes, but they do not see, they have ears, but they do not hear, noses, but they do not smell, they have hands, but they do not feel, feet, but they do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. What God says in many passages like that one in Psalm 115 What he shows about the folly of worshiping idols, God now shows in living color to the Philistines. Their idols cannot even save themselves, 
let alone save the people who worship them. God is showing his true glory to the Philistines. He exposes their gods as false, empty gods, and he shows that he is the true God who will not share his glory with any other. God's lesson here in 1 Samuel 5 is first for the Philistines, but they don't seem to get it. They will eventually send the ark of God back to Israel, but they will also continue in their worship of defeated Dagon. So why does God bother? Why does God bother to show himself to the Philistines if he doesn't also choose to give them faith and repentance? Well, God is always in the business of idol smashing, even if it doesn't lead to salvation. That's actually part of God's character as a jealous God. He demands the worship that we owe him. And everyone and everything in the world does owe God worship. He is the creator and sustainer of everything. That universal worship is what God is, that's his plan We see in Philippians 2 what that will look like. Philippians 2 shows the universal worship, or the acclaim at least, of Jesus Christ, as we see God's rule in Christ. Therefore, God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue confess in heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is seeking worshipers, but God also will find, he will make everyone seek him and acknowledge his glory and his power, just like he has started to do in the lives of the Philistines. But before that day, before when Jesus returns, we see God's actions and God's action toward the Philippines or Philistines or others. When he defeats people's idols like this, these are also gracious acts. They are gracious acts because God is reminding people of their sin and pointing them back to himself as their only hope of salvation. You know, God is still busy smashing idols. We don't worship actual idols in our lives or in our culture, probably, but we still manufacture many idols. What does Calvin say? We are idol factories. That is so true. And if we look around us, God is busy destroying many of the idols that we have created. What is an idol of our culture today? It's identity. Who are you? Well, you get to define who you are. Or it's freedom of sexual expression. Be who you are. Do what you want. God smashes that idol by showing that that search for identity leads to emptiness. There's no fulfillment in trying to create who you are. What about a worship of money? It always leads to discontentment. A worship of sports or celebrities or success always disappoints. Our idols can never, ever fulfill us because we are made to worship God. God, right now, is in the business of smashing the idols of the world and calling people to honor him. Now, I said that God's lesson here was both for the Philistines and for Israel. God is beginning to show his true power to Israel as well as he defeats Dagon. 
God shows Israel that he is self-sufficient and sovereign. He is able to defeat any false god all by himself. He does not need Israel's help. But more to the point, what Israel had to learn was that God is self-sufficient and sovereign, and therefore he cannot be a captive to his own people. Remember that that was the problem at the heart of Israel's false worship of God. This is what we saw in 1 Samuel 4. Israel had a mechanistic view of God. If they brought the ark, God would bring success. God actually had to serve them if they did the right thing. God's victory over Dagon is supposed to correct Israel's heart. He can do it without their presence, without their help, and he's showing them who he actually is and why they should worship and submit to him instead of trying to bend him to their will. But God is not done with the Philistines, and he is not done with Israel. He's not done with the Philistines because he moves on from judging their gods to judging them. That's what we see secondly, is we see God judges his enemies in verses 6 to 12. Now, over and over again in these final verses, we see the same phrase repeated. The hand of the Lord or the hand of God was heavy against them. This is describing the active judgment of God against his enemies. We actually see the same phrase used in Exodus 9 during the 10 plagues as God sends them on Egypt. Moses actually warns Pharaoh on the fifth plague, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock. God is at work very clearly to judge the Philistines. And God's judgment of the Philistines, the people, comes after his judgment of Dagon, their God. That order is very intentional. Dagon has been defeated. He cannot defend the Philistines. And God is bringing that truth home to the Philistines as he judges them in each one of their cities. Now, God's particular judgment was terror and tumors and eventually death. You can see the pattern is repeated in each city. In Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron, as the ark comes, God starts working by sending terror and tumors. Now, why God chose tumors as an appropriate judgment, I don't know. That's unclear. But there is something that's particularly striking about this judgment, and that's the terror that comes with it. And when we tell this story maybe to our kids, I think we focus on the tumors and then the mice in 1 Samuel 6. But one of the key parts of God's judgment is a fear of him. And in each city, the terror of God's presence increases until in Ekron, the third city, there is a deathly panic. Verse 11, it seems like from what verse 12 says that this panic sent by God actually led to people dying. The Philistines are completely physically and psychologically exposed to God's judgment. There is nowhere that they can hide. And the last verse sums up the extent of the suffering caused by God's judgment. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. The Philistines recognize that God is the one who is bringing this judgment. You know, the believing narrator 
says that it is the Lord's hand at work. And that's exactly what the Philistines say as well. So the pagan Philistines are correctly identifying what is happening. And the Philistines also know the reason for this judgment. They're being judged for holding on to the ark of the Lord. Now, they may not understand the full significance of the ark. They may not understand that the ark was the symbol of God's presence with his people. And it was the means of how God was able to to dwell with his people. Remember, we saw last time that in the ark, we have the picture of salvation and the covenant. Because the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat pointed toward the sacrifice of Christ so that a holy God could dwell with his people who have broken his law. The Philistines wouldn't have probably understood that, but they do recognize at a very basic level that God is bringing this particular judgment on them because of their attitude and actions related to him and his ark. Just as we saw with the defeat of Dagon, we see here, we see the extent of their unbelief. Their unbelief continues as they struggle to deal with God's judgment. Notice that they begin to shift the ark around. First Ashdod, then they send it to Gath, and finally on to Ekron. This is a a kind of avoidance strategy, right? If we just move God, then he won't bother us anymore. At the heart, this is still an attempt to manipulate or subdue God. There must be a way that we can control God even if it's as simple as just moving him down the road to somebody else. But God doesn't work that way. As we saw earlier, he actually judges them, not just for their initial actions against him, we saw that, but God increases his judgment at every stop. He is judging them as they try to control him time and time again. And finally, the Philistines recognize the foolishness of their plans. Verse 11, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. The Philistines at the end of this passage are completely defeated. Their victory in capturing the ark has led to the defeat of their God and the devastation of their towns. God, in fact, has gone on a victory march through their territory, town by town by town, showing his power to them. So what is God teaching his enemies? What is God teaching the Philistines? They cannot deflect or defeat God. They they must come to terms and recognize the power and persistence of God. And they're also learning the folly of their own sinful pride. They were foolish enough to believe that they control God. God shows them that is not true. And God teaches them that he will make his glory known among the nations, even if he does not choose to bring saving faith as well. That's what God is teaching his enemies, the Philistines. What is God teaching his people? What is God teaching the Israelites? There's a few things that we can point out here. First, God teaches them that he defeats their enemies. And he does this in a much more spectacular and complete way than they ever could. No Israelite military campaign could accomplish what God has done here, especially with so little apparent effort. So as Israel looks and sees God defeating their enemies, they are meant to reflect on God's power and on God's kingship. 
God actually shows them his true kingship because God shows that he is the sovereign king of all the earth. That is what any faithful Israelite would have confessed, that God truly is king of the whole earth. Think of a psalm like Psalm 47. Simple, God is king of all the earth. That was written into their creeds as the people of God. But they didn't actually believe it. And God's kingship confronts the Israelites in this passage because they suffered from having a very small view of God. If they are actually able to control God, then he is not truly a great God. So God teaches them about his power and defeating their enemies. He teaches them about his kingship. And God teaches the, Isra the Israelites the truth about his presence with his people. Remember that the Israelites did not truly understand the holiness and power of God. They did not really understand what it means for God to be with his people. But here in 1 Samuel 5, God is showing them the true terror the true fear of his presence in the midst of sinners. Sinners for whom there is no sacrifice. The Philistines in the Old Testament here have no way of being right with God, right? They will only ever be under his judgment. God has not chosen them to be his people, and he has not provided a way for them to be right with him. And what the Philistines experience is supposed to be a lesson for Israel because this is what the Israelites deserve. Because the Israelites themselves are in serious danger of doing the exact same thing that the Philistines have done. The Israelites' priests and the people have despised God's sacrifices. They have despised the way that God made for his people to be right with him. Remember the false worship. And the false priests, Hophni and Phinehas, that we saw in 1 Samuel 3 and again in 1 Samuel 4. The Israelites have not treated God as holy. And they have taken God's presence for granted instead of recognizing that he is graciously present with them, but also that he calls them to faith and obedience. So God teaches them about his presence. But finally, God teaches Israel that he does all things for his own glory. This is another valuable lesson for God's people here because Israel has trampled on God's glory. They have done that by not respecting him and treating him as holy. But God will be glorified, whether it's from his own people who have turned their backs on him or whether it's from pagan Philistines. That is actually a way of passing judgment on Israel, that those pagan Philistines who are far away from God, they recognize God and his glory in a greater way than God's own people do in 1 Samuel. And if it's true from what they do, what they say, even with the little that they know and understand of God, how much more should the Philistines or the Israelites respond to God's work rightly. God will make his name known. He will make his glory great. He will spread his knowledge, the knowledge of him, around the world. Now, as God's people now, we are meant to learn those exact same lessons. 
We need to see God as the true king, the true powerful king that we need, who is ruling and defending us, who is the one who will actually be defeating our enemies, not us. And we need to learn about God's presence. We need to rejoice in what God has done for us. And we need to understand the very foundation, God will be glorified. That is why God does everything in this life. In everything that he's created and everything he does in his church and everything he's done in our lives, God is seeking glory. And he will get it, both in salvation and also in judgment. But we now, in the New Testament, can see even more clearly through the work of the Spirit, Christ and his work that are present in this passage. Already pointed us forward to Christ's victory from Philippians 2. That is pictured in God's judgment in 1 Samuel 5, because the Philistine and all sinners will not be able to hide from God's presence at the second coming. The Philistines couldn't run away now, and no sinner will be able to escape God's presence when Jesus returns. We will all have to stand in Christ's presence when he comes as the judge and acknowledge his power and authority and receive his just judgment. And that tells us that false gods and rebellious people will be judged. And Christ's present rule and this coming victory that's promised show why sinful plans to deflect or defeat God like we see with the Philistines, those plans are worthless. Even as Christians, we try to ignore God at times. Maybe when he's uncomfortably convicting us of a sin. How many times in your own life have you tried to push God away? That is true of all people because of sin, right? And all people outside of Christ, this is the way that they live their lives. They're trying to suppress what they know about God. Look at Romans 1. Or they try to make him a God that they can control, somebody they can please, somebody who actually isn't too upset with them, somebody that is actually just like them. God cannot be ignored, and he cannot be controlled. And the way he teaches us and others that lesson today may not be as dramatic as what he does in 1 Samuel 5, but his glory will always shine through. Christ's victory and judgment also reminds us that Christ is the one who saves his people from the wrath of God that we see here. That's what's happening. We see the wrath of God as he judges the Philistines. God is pouring out just a small portion of his wrath for their sin in this chapter. And Christ saves us, his people, from the fullness of God's wrath that we deserve. The experience of God's wrath for eternity, is so much worse than having our idols fall over and our bodies and even our minds attacked. Christ saves us from the eternal just wrath of God for our sins. Apart from Christ, none of us here are any better than the Philistines. Outside of Christ, we are just like them. In fact, we would be even more guilty than they are because we know so much more about God and so much more about his Savior, Jesus Christ. 
But as we see who we would be without Jesus, this is where we see the grace of the gospel because Christ has taken on himself the full wrath for our sins and he brings us now into his very own gracious kingdom. And in that kingdom, God's grace reigns. The fact that God is gracious to Israel here and the fact that God is gracious to us today, even when we sin, even when we sin, he doesn't write us off like the Philistines. He doesn't just throw us out. No. God is gracious to us, even in our sin. And that is a reminder of his covenant love for us, his people in Christ. Think of Israel's experience. Why does God not treat Israel like the Philistines, even though they deserve it? It's because the God of Israel has chosen his people. And in his steadfast love, he will work to discipline them, but he has plans to restore them as well. Just turn over a few chapters in 1 Samuel 7, one of the great bright spots of 1 Samuel, as the people of God finally come back to worship God. This is true for us as well. There's a similar pattern. You know, the author of Hebrews reminds us of the fatherly love and discipline of our God. Look at Hebrews 12. But this is where we see his love for us because he is now our father instead of our judge because of Christ's work for us. It's true in the Christian life. God may even severely discipline us at times. Look at the life of David. Psalm 51 and the death of his son. God does deal with us in our sins, but he does not deal with us according to our sins. Psalm 103, he does not judge us as he judges pagan Philistines and all those who are outside of him. And his goal as he disciplines us is always to bring us back to himself. 1 Samuel 5 then is so clearly a passage about God's judgment on his enemies. And even as we see that so clearly here, we also see that this passage is a passage of hope. This passage is full of the hope of the gospel. Because as we look at Israel and we look at ourselves, we see God's grace for us in Christ. So as we close this evening, I would encourage us all, rest in the grace, the free grace of God for you, the grace and the blood of Christ that covers all of our sins, and rely on our gracious and powerful God to help us to respond to him as he deserves. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would teach us what we need to hear from your word. We pray that what we have heard tonight about your greatness and about how sin, sinners, and even as believers in our own sin, how we so often try to fight against you or try to control you or not see and really believe how great you are. Lord, do your work to correct our eyes and our hearts and our lives And Lord, be gracious to many. We thank you that you have called now not only Israel to be your people, but you have chosen people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation to come and worship you. 
And we pray that you would glorify your great name, both in judgment on your enemies, but especially in saving your people from all around the world. We pray that you would do this now. In Jesus' name, amen.